<laughs> we had this. We had this. We great, have to do it again. Yeah, we just did it again. We just did the whole interview again. It like, sucks. And it wasn't. It wasn't as good the second time. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't as good. Yeah, the first yeah. time was really good. Yeah. Anyway, I I did my um, recorded Christmas video for the church uh, in September, and I did I think like four takes in English and six in French. Oh my gosh. And I got to Whistler the next day or two days later and got an email from PJ saying that the file corrupted. Oh. So I have to do it all over again. And I was like, oh, please, dear God, don't tell me I don't have to take like a trip to Toronto just to do this. And But no, we don't. So we can wait until I go back in November. So. Oh, good. Oh, good. good. Yeah. All right. So shall we get started? Let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of It's Your Call with me, Karen Medland, and my colleague and friend, Andrew Richardson, as your hosts. And today we are so excited to welcome back. Let's get our title right this time because it's changed. The right. Oh, no. Yes, the right. Is that correct? Yes, I got correct. it right. The right Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne moderator of the United Church. Welcome, Carmen. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Andrew. It is so good to see you here. Uh, if, if you have listened to last season, you would have had, heard Carmen uh, chat with Andrew and I about her call to ministry as an Indigenous woman from BC who, who shared with us an amazing journey of call into order of ministry with us in the United Church of Canada. And we had interviewed Carmen as she was the only at that time and was, in fact, the only um, candidate for moderator of the United Church. And here she is back with us as moderator. So Carmen, I'm sure it's been a whirlwind for the last few months. But if anyone follows you on Facebook or Twitter, they will have seen some of the amazing things and places you have been as moderator. And so Andrew and I wanted to talk to you about what it is you're feeling called to about some of those amazing journeys and some of those amazing places you've been to in even such a short time and what you're looking forward to over the next few years. So, Carmen, let's start at the beginning. How did it feel to be elected moderator? Um, it's been quite amazing. And I have to tell you guys, I think back to the first podcast that I did with you I think it was in January yep. and I laugh all the time because I was like not both feet in, right? Like I was like, well, we'll see how it goes. And if I discern any time between now and April, this is not the right thing for me or the church. I'm going to step away. And, um, you know, because I really felt like it was um, an external sense of call at that point. And I didn't, I didn't really own it that I was a, a nominee for moderator. And I was like, okay, okay, God, if the church says yes, then I guess I will say yes. Um, and that was really the stance that I took. And then um, I was really blessed that the board at First United Church Community Ministry Society and the other board at First United Church Social Housing Society um, agreed to let me take my five-year sabbatical despite the fact that I might come back for two weeks and then become moderator 
if I was elected. And, you know, at that time, we didn't know if other people were going to be nominated throughout the spring or whatever. And while I was on sabbatical, I read a book by Marcus Buckingham called Love and Work. And in the book, he talks about how we have these like red threads of things that we love um, that run through our lives. And um, and they're very specific loves. So uh, like you, Karen, I can see the bookshelf behind you. I love books. And you could walk into my house or my office and know that I love books. Um, but it, it has to be more specific than that. So, uh, for example, I love books by writers. Um, I love nonfiction books by writers across disciplines grappling with some of the world's most gnarly problems, like in economics, climate change, like social change, things like that. So that's one of my red threads picked a good career for that being one of my red threads. And so he talks about how um, we have these red threads and when your aptitude matches your love, that's where you can find like sort of professional success that rockets you into some like fourth dimension. And you only need like 20% of your work life to be comprised of these red threads, but you should really strive to make as much of your work involve red like tying in these red threads as possible. And when your aptitude doesn't match your love, then that's when your love becomes your hobby. So if you love to play the trombone, but you are not talented at it, you're never going to be a concert trombonist, but you can play the trombone for recreation for the rest of your life and love it. So as I was working through this book, I started thinking back to like, what are my red threads? And I wrote them all down and I was like, oh, those are all the things the moderator gets to do. <laughs> I might really like this. And I realized that one of the things that I had done, uh, you know, when I ended up, you know, I, I think I talked in our last discussion about, uh, you know, starting my doctoral program, I was going to be in and out in four years. And then God laughed and introduced me to my husband. And then I got married and had two babies. And um, but the way that that happened with Gabriel being a surprise and, you know, the challenges around my husband's legal status in the U S and all of that stuff, I kind of went into this like self-protection mode, right? Like I'm just, mm-hmm. I have to focus on protecting my family and like my plan and my sense of call really went out the window and I would rationalize how the things that I was doing were, you know, I I would make these like rational connections, but it really took me out of the um, type of leadership and I guess like ecumenical conversations that I was really passionate about having. And um, it really took me until this spring to sort of say like, oh, okay, that period of immense threat and stress is over and I can let it go. And I can go back to I am, in fact, back to this level of national and international leadership in the church and um, and everything is okay and there's no tiger at my door and I can relax. So, and so, so, yeah. Oh, sorry. So um, I, I, like, I like the image of the red thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that you're a few months into the, the new gig, how many red threads have you found? Um, well, the travel and the ecumenical conversation are two. I think, um, 
you know, my one of my indigenous names in Kwakula means woman who travels to places far away. <laughs> so <laughs> it was inevitable. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I wouldn't I won't say that it's not exhausting because sometimes it is, but I think also um the fact that I don't find it draining um is a gift probably you know like i um sue fortner who was for decades was the assistant to the general secretary and the moderator um at the general counsel offices said that um it's been fairly typical for moderators to kind of like reach peak burnout in the first six months and you know i've got one month left to go and then i'm taking two weeks of study leave and two weeks of vacation and like I'm all systems go. I feel like uh, because it's something, it's one of my red threads um, to travel that uh, I don't find it disorienting or overwhelming in addition to some of the other pieces. Um, so that's been a gift. And um, I mean, even coming back from, so I was I was installed on August 7th August 8th to 10th, we had our first meeting of the moderators advisory committee, um, which is not normal. It's supposed to be soon into your term as moderator, but it's not necessarily supposed to be like the subsequent three days. <laughs> and, but um, Graham, Reverend Graham Brown Miller, who's the minister at Jubilee United Church, which actually happens to be also where my office is, um, is the chair of my committee. And I talked to him about going to the World Council of Churches and the moderator has almost always, I think has always gone as an observer, um, not necessarily as a delegate because you have to give the names of voting delegates and it usually doesn't match up with knowing who the moderator is gonna be at the time of an assembly. Um, and, you know, I always think about our financial budget and our carbon budget in the church and, you know, really grappled with like, okay, do I need to go? Or is this me wanting to go because I served on the general council or the executive of the WCC for a few years, but we decided like, no, I should go because the moderator is always gone. And um, so that was like August 26th to September 9th, I think. And so then there were other things that were sort of coming up in September. And I thought, you know, like we like maybe we can just do it like the three days right after my installation. And then the Office of Moderator and General Secretary can take a break, meaning that the general secretary and our shared assistant and Jennifer Henry, who's the interim director of communications, could take a break following general counsel. And um, and so we did. And then I went from there uh, straight home on August 11th to Bella Bella. And I went to a women's wellness retreat in Heltzik territory. We have this beautiful new off-grid um, like retreat center that our tribal council built and, um, or I guess the Cook's Society did. Anyway, it's its own society now. And it's just in the most stunning location um, in part of our traditional territory. And you have to, it's about a half hour boat ride outside of Bella Bella and spent uh, four days on retreat with other Heltzik women, just really grounding myself in who I was and where I was from. And um, then uh, 
the local United Church in the community gave a dinner for me. It was mostly just like the family from my mom's uh, dad's side of the family that came, but the hereditary chiefs from our family came and the elected chief counselor came and um, just got all loved up by my family and uh, went from there to uh, Alert Bay and worked for my parents for uh, about a week and a half and then came home for two days and off I was to Germany for the World Council of Churches. And um, that was really an intense experience for me because, of course, the last time I had gone to a General Assembly of the World Council of Churches, I was a voting delegate and I was on the Public Issues Committee and I had meetings like until midnight every night and I was in committee meetings and voting decision sessions and everything. And, and this time I was an observer. I had no corresponding privileges. I had no voting privileges and I really like the world was my oyster. I could do anything I wanted. So I wandered around the Brunin, which was sort of like the marketplace of different um, displays from ecumenical ministries from all over the world. Uh, I connected with old friends. I spent a lot of time with Martha Wood and Samantha Miller, who are two young delegates to the WCC, mm -hmm. um, sharing some of my experience with them. Um, I connected with a lot of other Indigenous people, um, had a really good reconnect with the presiding bishop of the Church of Norway, who uh, just finished two five-year terms as the General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, um, but previously we had co-moderated the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Forum core group together from like 2008 to 2010, I think, when he was elected. So um, it was a it was a very different experience to be there. And then I then I went through my own like oh like should I have come? Like I felt guilty for like not necessarily having an official role. Um, but then I thought about it and I thought, well, everybody that is involved in my orientation and onboarding is here, which is the general secretary. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd be sitting at home with like, well, what am I going to do if I'm not here? And, you know, there were some, I, I got to meet with our partners from the Philippines. Um, and that's another trip that I've taken since I started. So uh, I had some like brief orientation to uh, the context that I would be visiting when I went to the Philippines. And I um, was able to be part of the Indigenous Peoples Pre-Assembly and also connect with Philip Peacock, who's one of the staff with the World Communion of Reformed Churches. And I'm on their Indigenous Peoples core group. And we had a consultation that was coming up, which was why I was going to the Philippines. So it was it was a good time. Um, and uh, the Reverend Dr. Bernice Soto, one of our beloved elders in the Indigenous Church, passed away mm. the, the last Monday that I was in um, in Germany. And um, I had originally planned to come home for, I think it was for to attend a potlatch in Balabala that ended up getting postponed. Um, and so I left the assembly two days early, which meant I got home and I was able to be home for 36 hours. And then off I went to Regina um, to go to uh, with some of the Living Skies region staff um to the wake and the funeral at carry the kettle reserve uh for a couple of days and that was um such a beautiful thing and you know i as clergy i love presiding at funerals 
I think it's the time when I feel most like completely like a minister um, because it is word sacrament and pastoral care all in mm-hmm. all in one um, life transition. Um, but I also enjoy it as like not the presiding. Um, I think that it's an important uh, ritual for us to honor the lives of those who've gone on before us. And so I was really, really uh, grateful that I was able to, I had, you know, made this plan to come home early. And then um, that meant that I was able to go to Saskatchewan to celebrate Bernice's life and, um, and to be at her funeral. And that was, uh, that was really beautiful. So um, I could keep going about what happened for the next couple of months, but that took me up to September 11th. (laughs) So just over a month of being uh, installed as moderator. Yeah. Yeah. I I got home from Regina September 10th and then the 11th was my birthday. And then on the 12th, I went to Edmonton. Um, So like the first week I was moderator, I received an invitation from the office of the special interlocutor um, that was appointed by Justice Canada on unmarked graves in Canada. And she was starting, it's um, Kim Murray, who's a Mohawk woman from, I can't remember if it's Kahnawaga or Ganastake. And she um, had been one of the lead staff for the TRC and had been appointed uh, by Justice Canada to sort of investigate what needs to happen around the unmarked graves. And um, so she had written to me and to the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church and asked if um, if we would send uh, church respondents uh, to come and present at a panel um, to sort of re- repeat back what we'd heard and, and respond. And um, so that was in Edmonton on the 12th, 13th, 14th of September. And um, what an incredible... Uh, three to two and a half days, really. It was um, one evening reception. There was a lot of cultural sharing. Um, In a lot of ways, it was very like official governmental. And there was some feedback from the community that it would have been good to like do more with our traditional medicines and uh, ways of being in the world. Um, But it was also very grassroots. So lots of uh, First Nations communities sharing with each other about their experience and where they were at with uh, doing research and researching uh unmarked graves and um i uh i really choked up at the the time that it was to um for me to respond so um i did a new thing and i said like the first three or four sentences of my self-introduction in Hestohla, which i practiced and practiced and practiced for the <laughs> for the whole time that I was there and then I also shared that I was the um the granddaughter of a residential school survivor and in fact when my grandpa had testified about his abuse that he went into um like a PTSD coma for three months after um after sharing about his experience for the um comprehensive settlement process and um you know, but I also um, heard a lot from the communities that were there that they didn't know how to access our archives. Um, and they didn't necessarily know about our new initiative that we were doing in the United Church about bringing the children home. Like, you know, we've set aside $3 million 
um, to help with research, exhumation, repatriation of remains of children that were affected by United Church residential schools. And so um, I was able to talk with deep pride about the fact that we had proactively done this, uh, that it was it's designed to be as low barriers possible. So um, all you have to do if you're an affected United Church community is to write uh, to bring the children home at united-church.ca. Um, whether you want archives, funding support, whatever, like there's only one email address. And then we 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 do the work to to find out what you need and how to set you up with the right resources. And um, it's trust-based uh, trust based granting. So there's like very little um, reporting that's required at the end of it that we just say, like, we trust that you're going to use this for the things that you said you're going to use it for. So there's no extensive like application process or, or reporting. And, um, and that was really, really well received. And I also was able to come home and make recommendations to our Indigenous Ministries and Justice staff in the National Archives. But like, I think you guys need to um, I mean, the IMJ staff are already planning to be there at certain points anyway, um, but the archives, I think, is now going to have a table at the subsequent events just because we realized that was really, you know, the government and the lawyers and the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation that know our archival teams across the, the country very well, but at the community level, they may not know that, and so we, we now have a commitment to have our archives there. Uh, going forward. So um, that was uh, an emotional but but really important uh, thing to do. Um, and then I went to Toronto for a week and a half to do our first general council executive orientation and planning and we met with senior church leaders. Um, I came home the last weekend in September to preside at a wedding that I had committed to before I was elected moderator. Um, and then one again, one of those like we deeply grappled with this um, whether or not I should go, and I did go back to Toronto uh, that Sunday afternoon um, so that I could preach at the opening worship at the first national meeting of the Board of Vocation and all its subsequent uh, cascading committees and everything. And so that Karen, how many people were there at that gathering? Oh, I don't know, Andrew. Andrew would know because uh, he there? was there. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> I was only um, there like really that morning. So yeah, you were just in and out, of, and it was a great uh, introduction um, to the to your work and to some of the issues. Uh, there'd be about a hundred and thirty people there, I think. Yeah, from, that's what I was going to say. From all like the committees of the of the board of vocation. Yeah, so it was like the the actual board of vocation, and then the indigenous candidacy board, and then and the regional candidacy boards. Yeah, and so. and the you know all of the you know the remedial committee and the, yeah all all the committees of the grandmother circle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, that was fun. I kind of feel like uh, I got the the theme was emancipation. Will you help me sing this song of freedom? And from the Bob Marley song, Redemption Songs, and um, I sort of took that as a challenge to be quite pointed I think, with the church. I was like, I love you, but also stop being so racist was basically the, <laughs> the point of my sermon. 
Um, so, and I think, you know, like, I'm not going to change. That's the thing that I will keep saying to the church over the next three years. And, um, but in a, in a way where I was like, you know, it's not just about inclusion of Indigenous and Black and other racialized people in the church. It's also about figuring out for not for non-racialized people for white people because white is normal right uh, why is white normal and how is it that your existence as white people is actually normative and and that is what white supremacy is right like we i think people kind of bristle at the term white supremacy because they all of a sudden have like images of white hoods and burning crosses and um but in a in a theoretical sense, it's really like the structures that made normal white white normal. Yeah, and so really challenged um, really challenged the church to think about that, and was like really presently surprised that I was sort of preaching to the choir in a lot of respects because the church has done so well at having a really diverse group of volunteers on those committees, and so it was not a mostly white room. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, I probably, you know, that I'm just confronting my own ideas of what I think the church still is. Um, and, you know, I think it, it is part of the work of the church, uh, in becoming an intercultural and anti-racist church to ensure that we have, um, non-white voices centered in those committees. Um, and so that was, uh, really lovely to see. Um, in the, in the United Church, it's customary, I think, for moderators to define their period of being moderator with some issue or focus. And is is anti-racism the focus of your? Is that your calling in your, or have you defined defined that in some way? Um, I would. I think I will always talk about it because it's related to everything. Hmm. Um. I joked with my my executive coach and mentor the night before my installation, we went for dinner and he was like, so what is your priority going to be? I was like, mm. people in the planet. And he's like, that is not one. <laughs> That's not one priority. And I was like, mm, but it is though, because they're deeply interrelated. <laughs> and he's like, but if you had to choose one, I was like, don't make me choose one. And then in in the Mac meeting, I was like, it's almost like I just want like the wellness of everything. Yeah. <laughs> everything and everyone. But um so we set three sort of priority areas of work uh for the next three years. One is to engage in fierce change-making conversations about uh the climate emergency, reconciliation, and inequality. Um, the second is to broaden what engagement looks like in the church. And so um, trying to have a little bit more of an external media um, and communication strategy around the work of the moderator and also the work of the church, because we've become very good at talking to the church about the church. Mm. And um, I think we could, in fact, we have a moral imperative to reclaim our voice of moral authority and speak from the church to the world about how we need to strive for the wellness of everything. And the third is to um, mentor a new generation of leadership in the church. And so I've been really, you know, 
in my spare time between all these trips, I've also been working at like a work plan that I could give to the general secretary. So he and the um, executive officer for finance can sort of figure out um, a budget so that my work is not just like blowing up the 2023 budget because it wasn't included at all. And um, I am realizing that that's still a lot. <laughs> so I I feel really attached to trying to find some way to, I guess, inspire Canadians to move the needle on climate. Because mm-hmm. we really have a seven and a half year runway to turn things around. And um, that's not very long. Like I'll be moderator for almost half of that. Yeah. And or a third of it anyway, and uh, without that, like everything else is sort of moot, right? And I want my kids to not have a like die horrible, painful deaths in their um, later years, and uh, you know, and I think it's possible. Like we're as humans, we're so capable of really radical innovation and um but it requires staying grounded in hope and possibility and openness and curiosity which you know with interest rates rising for the first time in a decade and you know the pandemic and then what the hell's monkeypox and where did that come from and climate change itself and all of the natural disasters that are coming and um you know the war in ukraine like it's it's has a lot of existential threat that people are facing and it's really hard um i I was talking with a group of women scholars on friday and i said it's almost like it's just like one more thing one more thing one more thing gets added to this trauma load that we're all carrying and um it becomes hard to think of hope and possibility Um, But I think it's possible. Um, In fact, I think that is the message of our faith, right? That we are an Easter people and we believe in the hope of the resurrection. And um, what better resurrection to strive for than to turn things around on climate change and get to net zero. So So as you're you're saying all this, Carmen, I'm I'm thinking about our folks in the pews, our ministry staff who are having to juggle all of these existential questions that folks are bringing to them and and their concerns and I'm thinking about conversations I've had with folks about yeah. whether you know what is the church's stance on Ukraine what is the church's stance on climate change and and trying to balance that with the impact of the last few years on finances and budgets and personnel inside kind of each congregation right across the country yeah and and so my my wondering or my question is around and it, you may not have formulated this yet because you've only been in the job a few months but I know that people will want to know how are you starting to think this through in terms of the life of congregations or inspiring congregations to think differently. How is the church gonna say support congregations who, or how would you like to see the church support congregations who are looking at some of these really big questions, but in that local setting? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I haven't, one of the things that I struggle with is um, one of the impacts of COVID on the way that the church works is, um, you know, traditionally the moderator has gone across the country and visited the regions and, you know, the regional staff and, and local congregations have sort of like partly footed the bill, but also, you know, been the ones in charge of like, planning and executing on those visits and um, taking a two-year break from that, the regions have kind of gone like, oh, we don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do that. And so um, I've been thinking mostly about like, how is it that I connect with people at the community faith level or at the regional level because I do not have a ton of regional invitations like sitting in my inbox <laughs> waiting for me to address them and oh that'll change now that we've done this podcast <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that Carmen um, no no um but the thing is like I also am constrained in that I can't respond to individual communities of faith necessarily either right mm. because then you get into like the really difficult like well why did you say yes to a congregation of 40 people in Nova Scotia but you said no to a congregation of 300 people in Winnipeg and so like I think that's the reason that it was almost always ne negotiated and planned through the regional office because like then you get into like you know being accused of like playing favorites or like not being in all the places all the time and um, and most of the invitations I've had from the church have been from individual congregations. Um, so we've developed a, um, a web form that should, there's, I think in the next week or so, there should be a link up on the website. So instead of emailing moderator at unitedchurch.ca, um, you would go to the moderator's webpage on the United Church website, and there's a form you fill out because one, then we also have the kind of information that our team knows that we need in order to discern about what to say yes to and what to say no to um, without having to do a bunch of back and forth emails and, and everything. It's just like, we're just gonna ask you all the questions up front. Um, but I think we also have some work to do um, in the moderator's advisory committee around um, and maybe with the regional executive ministers around like what is this what is this work going to look like and how do I speak to the, the individual communities of faith um, because I don't actually think just posting things on our website and uh, doing it through social media is the highest and best use of our time and so um, I'm interested in having cross-sector conversations around climate um, that involve both for-profit, non-profit, uh, faith communities and governments at all three levels. Um, and I think that maybe there'll be like a wider um, engagement strategy uh, with the church when we get to doing that kind of work. Um, I think there if there's a way to um, encourage congregations to sort of up their public education game around climate, that would be good. Um, the Climate Emergency Unit's done some polling and um, found that even though people believe that climate change is real, they believe in anthropogenic climate change, that it's caused by humans, 
um, when asked what they can do to mitigate climate change, the answer with most people is recycling, which is not the correct answer. Um, but that was really like the last big public awareness um, campaign that we engaged on in federally, like across the government and, you know, businesses and schools and and faith communities, 65% um, of our greenhouse gas emissions in Canada come from stationary combustion, which is heating our buildings. Mm. And 28% comes from driving cars. And, you know, we talk about like, well, not flying anymore or something like that makes up 3% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And so reducing the amount that we travel while important, is not actually, you know, it's a, um, Seth Klein, uh, he used to be with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, uh, Naomi Klein's little brother, um, who's now with the Climate Emergency Unit, said to me the other day, he's like, the United Church of Canada's travel budget, travel carbon budget is a rounding error. Like, <laughs> yeah, reducing your travel is not actually going to have big climate impact, like changing the way you heat your heat and cool your buildings and how you drive cars is going to be the bigger thing. So I think finding a way to communicate that to churches, um, especially given the fact that at the last general council, we made a commitment to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 80%. I think also looking at, do we really need to have as many buildings as we have, right? Like when you look at how many congregations are struggling, um, do we really need five congregations on the west side of Vancouver? I mean, God might strike me down for asking that question. Um, or at least some people on the west side yeah. of Vancouver. Probably, might probably, not, probably not God. God. <laughs> but actual individuals, likely. But I, wish I, that. <laughs> but I do think it's a great no. question, though, because so in my work in the region, um, uh, you know, it, in my work in region, a lot of the questions I'm getting from congregations is around use of the building. What do we do with this mm -hmm. huge building that we've had when there was 400 kids in the Sunday school program and, you know, we had four yeah. services every Sunday, which I still don't actually ever believe ever happened. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you know the, the golden age of the church, right, in the mm -hmm. er, early or late 50s, early 60s, and these buildings were made for that. And now we're sitting, as you say, with like maybe 20 people sitting in a building that was built for 400 and, yeah. and we're just heating air, like we're just heating the outsides, right? Because, yeah. you know, I remember when I was at, uh, uh, when I was at First United in Kelowna and we were talking about like the building, which it's an old building, it's over a hundred years old, we're talking about it. Yeah. And, and we talked about the fact that the the insulation on the exterior walls is sawdust because that's what they used back then, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and that's pretty normal for a lot of our older congregations uh, or for our older buildings that congregations mm -hmm. are using. So it's, I think it's interesting. I think it'll be an interesting conversation because I think it's a con conversation that's actually happening already. Yeah. But I like the idea that you are also having this conversation and wanting to engage communities of faith in that mm -hmm. sense of what is it in a positive way, in that sense of hope and, and that sense of resurrection, that Easter people mode of thinking, how is it we can do this, not only mm -hmm. to save our church, but to save the planet? 
Yeah. And I think people will be interested to hear what you've got to say about that, Carmen, and to yeah. think about it in those kind of, you know, I remember there, there was, we used to get the, what was that? Think global, act local. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was a phrase a while back from kind of people who were concerned about the, you know, the fate of the planet. I think that's very much what the churches could, are longing to hear from our leadership. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a, there are a lot of actions that we can take individually, but I also think we need to be advocating for policy change, right? Like, um, I'm going to seem like I'm the biggest Seth Klein fan in the world, but I think it's only because it's the most recent conversations that I've been having about this kind of stuff. In his book, The Good War, um, he talks about uh, interviews that he's had with like long-standing, you know, liberal MPs and uh, people who are known to be and who have or are serving as the Minister of Environment and saying like, well, you know, Seth, I'm a lifelong environmentalist and I I am with you, but like the people are not there yet. And I'm like, what people wear? You know, like I think we need to show up and tell our governments that we want regulated change because that is the only thing. Like voluntary voluntary measures are not going to get us to net zero by 2050 they're just not no so and like you know i we we like to throw the developing world under the bus right and think like oh well you know like we can't bear the burden of doing all this stuff i just got back from a week and a half in the philippines saw hardly any single-use plastic hardly any like in the in the in the shanty towns, yeah, because they're dividing their big things of oil into like little bags of oil that you can buy for 15 pesos instead of having to afford a 300 peso bottle of oil. But, you know, in all of the stores, everything, like all of the takeout foods, all compostable, like the world is getting there. And I think North America is falling behind in terms of our climate mitigation strategies. And, and we need to tell our politicians we expect more. So, I mean, that I think is, is the heart of the issue. So the economy, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, all of those things have kind of pushed climate change down on the trauma agenda. Yeah. Um, and I guess, how do you, as moderator, instill hope? when people are increasingly cynical about all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, even even those people who, who believe deeply in the need for climate change are feeling like, well, this is all for naught because it's we're not moving the dial on it in mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not for naught. Like the technology exists to radically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It exists. It's not like we're confronting some big, massive unknown about like, what do we do? It's just that we have to do all the things. And so prioritizing which are the most important things becomes difficult. And I think we get, we get told that um, it's not possible to do diff business differently. And so it's up to us as individual consumers to like make relatively negligible impacts on i mean driving driving a fossil fuel burning car is probably like the biggest 
individual contributor and and then heating your home, right? So if you can install, especially if you live somewhere where you have hydropower or you can tap into like um, installing solar power or you know you get some kind of renewable energy grid connected to your home, switch to a heat pump. It'll give you heating and cooling. And, um, and you know, it's a, it's a ten to $20,000 price tag to do that, which is not nothing, but there's all kinds of government rebates to do it. And it's probably the single most important thing you can do. The next most important thing you can do is to get out of a gas car or a diesel car, right? So if you live somewhere where, again, you can tap into hydropower or some other renewable power to charge an EV and and you can do that, um, you know, your next car, make a commitment to have it be a plug-in hybrid at the least or a fully electric vehicle um, or, or commit to taking transit or riding your bike or whatever. Um, all of those things um, can contribute to uh, us reducing our collective greenhouse gas emissions and then also thinking about how we do business in the church. But I do think that um, giving our politicians the groundswell of public support for regulatory change is going to be the biggest impact, right? Because it only takes 3% of the population to make the government sit up and take notice. Well, mm -hmm. the United Church of Canada makes up 3% of the population, and we're not the only ones that care about the climate. But are we writing letters to our MPs saying, I want you to regulate change? Because we we let the lobbyists have their ear, right? Mm -hmm. We let the lobbyists say, like, well, you know, we're going to take incremental change approaches, or we like even even the whole LNG controversy in which is, you know, ever present here because we're going to export all this liquefied natural gas to Japan and to China. Like Japan and China don't have to buy LNG, right? Like they can they can switch to cleaner nuclear power, they can switch to solar power, to wind power that like they don't have to take this incremental approach that we've taken where, you know, 30 years ago, we started relying more on natural gas because it was free, you know, it was plentiful and it was, and it was here. Um, and we didn't have the technology for some of these other renewables. They don't, they can leapfrog over us, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have to go through the same transition that we've gone through in the rest of the industrialized world. So, um, but I think sometimes it's hard when you're in it and you feel like, all you hear is the voices of the critics. We have to be the people of hope saying like, we believe the government can stand up and to, and to change this. And we can change it through our own actions. We can look at our own rampant consumerism and think like, do I really need, you know, the number of things that I have? Like, can I not repair some things? I mean, it drives me crazy that it's hard to repair shoes. Right. Like I grew up taking care of my shoes, polishing my shoes, taking them to a shoemaker, getting the soles replaced. I had some of the same dress shoes like my whole time through high school and into my mid 20s. But it's hard to find shoes you can replace the soles on anymore. That's so true. And, and it's hard to find anybody who can do the work. <laughs> on a yeah. pair of shoes. Hard to find a shoemaker. 
Okay, I know, so and, and if you do, they're like niche little boutique places right. where it's like, you're going to charge me $80 to replace the soles of my shoes? What? <laughs> I could have bought new shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. you'll, well, you'll be very proud of me, Carmen, because I just applied to have solar panels put on my house. Yes. I am very proud of you. Because <laughs> you're That's, living in Alberta now, right? I live in Alberta. Yes, I live so in Alberta. Important. Like, this is the other thing is like, be educated about the choices that you're making. Like for every single person who bought a Tesla in Alberta, you probably just increase your greenhouse gas emissions because burning coal to fire the electricity Ooh. to charge your car is more is worse for the environment than burning a gas car. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you for getting solar power in Alberta. Yes. Well, I was really surprised actually. My neighbors have it. Uh, I've got neighbors around the corner who have it. And I drove down to Medicine Hat recently for work, and yeah. I was astonished at the at the solar farms all yeah. the way down to Medicine Hat in in Alberta, which you know we we think of as oil and gas central in Canada. Alberta this- is also leapfrogging right they're they're the fastest transitioning province to renewable energy yeah and both the time where i live and the time where my office is uh there are a few you know about uh, 15 minutes apart have now had a complete and utter ban on plastic bags there you cannot get you cannot get a plastic bag in a store now you have to bring your own reusable bags for everything and and it is it's interesting like i think it is that leapfrog piece and so how does how do we encourage one another to kind of leapfrog through that process rather than the incrementals so it'd be interesting to see, Carmen, based on what you're saying, how your years as moderator will will change maybe the way the church itself thinks about the planet, the environment, God's mm-hmm. beautiful creation, and how we relate to it. Yeah. I mean, because the other the other pieces, we're like right now, it's we're in for a whole world of hurt that like i mean good friday is still coming right we're we're dealing with the impacts of our greenhouse gas emissions in the 80s right now so we have another 40 years of greenhouse gas emission consequences that we're going to have to live through and that should be even more of a catalyst for us right Mm -hmm. so well having having just lived through a hurricane here in pei um that was uh certainly a result of climate change Uh, this is not an an area where we have a history of those kinds of things um i i i think i think the more that you as moderator talk about this and offer solutions and offer hope and offer encouragement Mm -hmm. will will in fact make a difference um and then as we become more engaged and more hopeful about it um, than as a church, right? I mean, that's 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 the context. Then uh, we can be evangelical in our zeal for climate change with the rest of the world, with the rest yeah. of our neighbors and folks outside the church. Yeah. yeah. So um, the last trip that I took after going to Toronto as I spent 11 days in in the Philippines. And um, we have six formal partnerships with different organizations, United Church of Christ in the Philippines, National Council of Churches, Equivoice, uh, Record, which is the regional 
ecumenical council of the Cordillera. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, we're obviously really concerned about human rights in the Philippines and, um, but one of the other things we've been working with our partners in the Philippines for decades is on mining justice. And, um, and I'd known about this from a previous trip that I took with the WCC in uh, 2008, but um, I got to visit an Indigenous community that engages in traditional Indigenous uh, gold mining, which is done chemical-free. Mm -hmm. And I just had this thought like, um, and it's been made illegal by the Marcos government because he says that uh, they're the ones that are ruining the mountains. Um, as opposed to the open pit mines that he wants to reopen. Um, and there are these tiny little tunnels that they carve into the holes, like the, it, into the mountains. Um, but they process the gold ore um, using gravity and crushing stones. So, um, you know, and not releasing a sim single chemical into the world. And I think, you know, we keep hearing, oh, we have to learn from indigenous wisdom. They've been, they've been mining gold like that in the Philippines for over 500 years. And it may not be a, as efficient. And I know we use gold in all kinds of things like semiconductors and, you know, like all kinds of electronics and things like that. And that it's a rare and precious metal, but we also have crap tons of it, like stocked away in vaults in gold bars that we could probably use for processing the things that we need we could also like most of the gold that's used for our jewelry is all recycled gold anyway right like there's mm -hmm. we we have so much that we don't need to always keep taking more we can just think differently about what we have and think and and so if we move to a slower way to mine gold um do we have enough and can we slow down the production of things that use gold enough so that we just use enough um that we could be gentler on the earth like the the mining companies are looking at going in and taking Remining the tailings ponds where they get like I think it's 0 0.05 grams of gold from a ton of tailing waste. They can use chemical processes to 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 get the gold out of that, and if they can get that much out of a ton, it's still worth it economically for them to do it. But it's not worth it for the planet. Mm. So, yeah. I think that there are stories like that where it's just like like what if you know like what if we could radically re-envision the way that we do so many things on this planet it would um, be amazing i think carmen i feel like we could just keep right on talking for another hour but <laughs> um and, and probably you know in a year's time or a year and a half time we'll want to have you back yeah but it seems like to me that's a good place to end our conversation because it seems to me that i hear over and over um, in your conversation, that that part of your calling is to is is at a sim simple level at least, to just to offer the the possibility of thinking and acting differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and if that if that becomes the red thread that runs through your your whole term as moderator, I I, I think the church will be well gifted by that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you. Um, 
thank you for, I, I mean, your schedule exhausted me just hearing about it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm off and, to Rome in the morning, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I really do appreciate that you stopped in to join us uh, for this conversation. Um, and I'm, I wish you well in your next three years. Thank you for sharing your gifts and thank you for being here with us. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Call. And so from Andrew Richardson and Karen Medlin and Carmen Lansdowne, thank you very much. Take care, everybody, and don't forget to listen to It's Your Call. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.